serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Those tactics have not changed from those used on the first Adam to those used on the last, Jesus Christ. He twists the word of God, he imputes false motives to the Father, plays on human weakness, flattering and seducing with half-truths, and when necessary, lies outright. The first Adam, some of you might say, well, he wasn't tempting Adam, he was tempting the woman in the garden. It's really important that as we look back that we keep in mind that fundamental to the language, Adam is the man. As in English, the one term does that double duty. There's the inclusive use of the term that Adam means the whole human race, all of humanity, mankind, humankind, if you follow our prime minister, people kind. <laughs> but all people, the whole race is comprised of that is, is comprised in the one. That's the inclusive use of the term, male and female. So when we hear that God made man in his image, and male and female, he created them. There's the exclusive use when we're referring to the single male individual. But we need to have both senses of things. The Adam, who is the one figure who holds the whole race, in the beginning, we understand that, that there was the one who was made, beginning of Genesis 2, as we heard again. Out of the one is drawn the woman. But now you have two new creatures, as it were. Now you have the male and the female. She's Again, she's not a disposable part of him, but she, too, is fully in the image and likeness of God. She, too, is fully human. They're parts of a whole. They belong together and the full mystery of humanity is there in the two coming together. There's the formation of the one flesh union. There's the family. There's the fruitfulness that comes of that. And as I've said different times, God's initial command to them to be fruitful and multiply can't be fulfilled until there are the two who can come together in that one flesh union. But it matters that we have that sense of the race being comprised there, the two but in the one, that we can understand that the last Adam, Christ, is the one in whom the whole race is recreated, is made new. The one man and yet the man who is the whole of humanity. Interesting, when you think about the temptations that take place in the garden by the devil, if you think about the one, you might think a little bit more about the techniques that he uses. That in the woman in the garden, we're seeing something of the passions, we're seeing something of the heart and the senses that are appealed to. We hear that as she gave way, that she simply took of the fruit that she had eaten and gave to her husband and he ate. And the sense of the head now, the intellect, the mind, the will that follows on the passions. We'll be reminded that part of the ordering that gets upset in the garden is that, that the head is to rule passions, keep them in the right order, keep them directed to the right ends. 
When that gets out of step, everything falls apart. But the demonic agenda that is there, that works in that, in that direction. We begin with that questioning of God's word. Did God say? Did God say that you were not to eat of any fruit of the garden? Important that you hear the response and that you hear it with the full flavor of it. I imagine the woman spreading her arms wide and saying, um, no, we are to eat of the fruit of, of all the trees. I mean, there's so much abundance here. We spend our time doing what God gave us to do that we really haven't been paying any attention to that tree in the midst. He, he did say we weren't supposed to eat of that because it would harm us. So we eat freely of all the other things that he gives us and we pay no attention to that tree. Why not that tree? Why did God keep that from you? And it is the way of the devil perpetually to focus on the lack, on the prohibition, and to take our hearts away from the provision of God. Well, because he told us that when we eat of it, in that day we will die. Why would we want to eat of that? And the devil's response, you will not die. So the questioning of God's word into the actual imputation now to God of the impure motives. God's keeping it from you because he's jealous of you. He knows that if you were to eat of that fruit, you would be like he is. You would know good and evil. You wouldn't need him anymore. And the contemplation of the fruit and the opening up of that way. The temptation to be like God. Or to be as gods. To be your own gods. Well, wasn't that the word at the beginning of this? When God created human beings that he made them in his image and likeness. They were already like God. When they ate the fruit, we hear that their eyes were open. But there's something strange going on in this. As you go back into the fathers, something like Chrysostom will point out that they already had their eyes open. Eve contemplated the fruit. When she was drawn out of Adam and presented to her husband, he beheld her. At last, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Their eyes were already open, but when they ate the fruit, their eyes were open. They were already naked, but when they ate the fruit, they were aware of their nakedness, and it was a problem. Again, in the fathers, they'll say, well, surely they knew good and evil in the sense of right and wrong. How could they be culpable for disobeying God's word if they didn't know the difference between what he required and didn't, what they ought to do? And I wonder in some ways whether it wasn't that all of the substance, all of the nourishment that they might get from that tree was already there in all the other fruits of the garden. But in context, and what happened with the eating of the fruit, it's like taking that thing all on its own, removing it from its context, knowing good and evil, but knowing it without God, without that context of the divine life, and the divine purposes. Husband and wife, this, this word knowing follows all the way through and it has on the one hand to do with the knowing in a 
physical sense, it will be husband and wife knowing each other in that marital union. But it will also be the knowing of things intellectually. It will be experiential knowledge of them. And whatever they knew before that, suddenly they knew out of the context. And you imagine that if we deal with the marriage union of husband and wife, the one flesh union, it's meant in the context of that committed love, of the holy giving themselves to each other, the perfect trust, the selfless agape love. It's to be in the context of them coming together in fruitfulness, so that their love will grow, yes, and the expression of that love in the formation of the family and the gift of children. But suddenly it's like that union comes to be just the sex with a stranger. It's being with the prostitute. It's, it's removed from its context. It's knowing, but it's not the same thing at all. And it's, it's twisted and it's distorted and it's unfruitful. They were naked, but that wasn't a problem. There was nothing hidden. But suddenly they're aware of the hiddenness. Suddenly the lust that moves in them. Now they're like God. Well, no. They become kind of their own gods. Again, the self comes to be in the center. Now you look at the beloved and it's no longer the one to whom you give yourself freely, but you look at the object, the one from whom you will get. They didn't drop dead. The devil was doing one of his half-truths. They didn't fall down on the ground. But they knew that death had entered in, that they became mortal, that there was an end that was not what they were created for. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread in all men, because all sinned. Yet death reigned even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We come to the antitype, the one to whom that type points us, Jesus, the last Adam. And his temptations were following right on his baptism. You think again, the words now ringing in the ears are, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Where does the devil begin? If you are the son of God, prove it. Do something godlike. Go your own way. Do your own thing. Show that you are divine. We're in the wilderness, not in the garden. Jesus has come to meet us where we are, cast out of that garden, although, interestingly enough, his preparation has been in that communion with the Father, which bears the interesting echo of what was going on in the garden before the fall. In the sense of Adam walking with the Lord in the garden, there in the cool of the day, the presence of God, a welcome presence, suddenly unwelcome afterwards. But Jesus, in that prayer, in that communion, actually putting off the things of gratification of his own desire, setting the, the passions, the appetites in their place, fasting and prayer, interesting reflection that he's hungry at the end of it, but if you are thinking about him being kind of lifted up in prayer, he's really not thinking about the body much at all. And now he comes down to her, and suddenly he's really aware of the need, and the devil strikes there. 
If you are the Son of God, look at the stones. Look at the stones. You need bread. You can have bread now. Take it. Fill your belly. Isn't it lovely to behold that thought of the good food? Well, food is a good thing. Bread is a good thing. Dealing with your hunger, that's an appropriate thing. But it's not the right time. Jesus will later say to his disciples and those gathered about, which of you who are fathers, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Here he is in the wilderness, and what's before him are stones. Does the father give him stones when he needs bread? No, it's the devil who's brought him the stones and says, make them into bread. He rejects him. He knows that when the time is right, he will have his food. But there's something right more important now. There's something more important always. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Israel was in the wilderness, deprived of all the other things they could count on. Not to learn to be able to count on the bread in the mornings, but to learn to trust God's word, to trust in him, to feed upon that word was to prepare them for the incarnate word who was to come. And so the devil turns, although he picks up where he was once more, if you are the son of God, you're trusting in him, great. And now he quotes scripture, and we always have to keep that one in mind. The devil's been around for an awfully long time. He knows what's there in the word. He knows how to twist. He needs, knows how to pull out of context. We've been hearing a little bit more from Psalm 91, the promise to the one who's trusting in, in God. You know, up on the temple, up on the temple. Did it really happen? Was it in person? Was it in a vision? Well, what happened in the garden? What did the woman see and hear? How does all of that work? The temptation before him, throw yourself off. Did he not promise? that he would send angels to bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You're the son, you trust in God's word, take him at his word. But what's wrong? Well, there are a number of times where God warns his people not to test him. But the testing always comes in their going their own way. Don't test him by, when he says, don't do it because there are consequences, don't test him by doing it to see what will happen. Don't go away from him. Don't disobey. Jesus has no reason to hear the Father saying, throw yourself off now. But there are the times when God does say, test me, put me to the test. Take me at my word. Do what I told you to do. And see whether I don't do what I promised to do. Went to Malachi and that word about bring me the full tithes. And he actually says, put me to the test. Romans chapter 12. Paul likewise talking about proving God's word by doing it. By putting it into practice. The interesting thing is that, of course, when the time is right, Jesus will do nothing less than the throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. That is, he will cast himself completely into the Father's hands. But it won't be from that height 
in Jerusalem it will be raised up upon the cross. Obedient to the point of death, death upon the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's really there that the devil picks up. You know, you're not to tempt the Lord your God. Okay, okay. I always feel like the mask is taken off at this point. You're not playing games. The heart of all of this is, I will give you all that you could desire. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. I always say, what kind of temptation is that? You can't imagine that Jesus is going to fall down his face before the devil. But to worship the devil is to put him first. To put his will ahead of God's. And I'll say as I often have that I don't believe the devil has any will of his own but to thwart the will of God. He doesn't care which direction you might go in in your life, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, whatever the the categories might be, whichever way you're going to go, he knows how to pervert it, how to carry you to the extremes. All he wants is that you go away from God's will. That's his will instead. Worship me. Worship me. He's offering Jesus what, on one hand, he doesn't have any authority to give. It's an illusion that the devil has, is the Lord of this world. He has what we give him, but it doesn't belong to him, and whatever he has in the short term, God allows, but it's not his in the long term. We remember that the risen Christ, with his disciples, declares, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. It is what's to come to him, but he's very clear. It comes by the way of the cross. Jesus is Lord no matter what. He's not only Lord because he went the way of the cross, but we could not be gathered into him. We could not share that reign with him. We could not be brought into life if he did not go the way of the cross. So there is no other way to go to that point of establishing his kingdom. And so to the devil, he says, get lost, go. Strangely, they're the words that we're going to hear echoed sometime later when Simon Peter, that great blessed apostle, the one who is the rock on whom he's going to build, who when he talks about going the way of the cross, will say, no Lord, that will never happen to you. The Messiah, you can't go the way of suffering and death. He will say to him, get behind me, Satan. You're listening now not to the Lord. You're listening to the words of men. You're listening to the earthly ways. You're listening to the devil. I must go this way, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. We were created in the image and likeness of God and we need to remember who we are. We need to know who we are in Jesus Christ by our new birth in Him. We need to know that we are sons and daughters. 
And the devil starts where he always does. Well, you will be like God. If you are the son of God, if you are the daughter of God, prove it. Prove it. Do it your own way. Go my way. Disobey God. Show that you can be like he is. You can have a will of your own. We need to remember who we are and be rooted in that. And we know to rebuke the devil as he comes. The serpent promised God-likeness by going our own way, becoming our own gods, effectively worshipping him. But Satan's kingdom will fall. It is already done. Jesus is Lord. The devil still twists the word of God and imputes false motives to the Father. We go through that one in our lives. We need to recognize it. So often we're angry with God for things not going the way we think that they ought, for the way that we were praying about them going. But He's our Father. He doesn't give us problems when we need bread. He comes in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, to suffer and die for us. He is working on our behalf. He made us for eternal life. He has done all that's necessary for us to be restored. And to remember who we are. We get things out of context and forget that. We are God's children. Satan continues to play on human weakness, flattering and seducing with half-truths, sometimes terrorizing. He loves to rule by fear. And as necessary, he lies outright. But most often, he twists the truth. We need to be filled with God's truth. We need to use the season of Lent well. Meditate on God's word to get those promises within us. To repent of our walking apart and to come to Jesus. To be renewed in the sacramental life. Drawing on the grace which comes from him alone. Read his word. Repent of sin. Renew your commitment to obey his word. To follow him. In the words of Paul. Receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Honor, O Lord, this day, thy precious blood, disarm the devil and renew us in Jesus' name. God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we ascribe almighty majesty, dominion, and power, henceforth and forevermore. Amen.